put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your ever-curious host, Jenny Love. Last summer on the No-Till Flowers Instagram account, I posted about some intercropping I was doing at my farm. That turned out to be one of the most popular posts to date, with a flurry of questions and many great suggestions. I made a mental note right then and there to dedicate an episode to intercropping in season two of the podcast. Intercropping, for those that aren't familiar with the concept, means instead of planting one crop in a given better field, you plant two or more crops at the same time or in quick succession, so they're growing together for at least part of their life cycles. Intercropping is a key practice to regenerative farming. It's talked about a lot in the grazing and vegetable farming communities, but it really hasn't caught on much yet in flower farming. I'm hoping today's conversation with guest Denise Richter will change that. I first met Denise in the summer of 2014 when she came to do a brief apprenticeship at my farm. At the time, she was at the very start of her own flower farming journey, growing on about a third of an acre in the city of New Orleans. Over the years since, I've been delighted to watch her farmer florist business, Pistol and Stamen, flourish to become one of the most sought-after event florists in the Big Easy. Check out the Instagram feed for Pistol and Stamen, and you'll see why. Besides nerding out about intercropping in this episode, I asked Denise for insight into how she came to her distinctive floral design style. And we talk about how she's navigated the heartaches and complexities of urban farming on rented land. If you're an urban farmer, you'll want to listen carefully to her wise words. It's a really jam-packed episode, and I'm super excited for y'all to listen to it. But before we dig in, I thought I'd do a quick focused overview of intercropping in a nutshell, so you have it to refer back to. There are some definite advantages to intercropping, as well as a few potential pitfalls. Let's talk about the good stuff first. Since we're all about soil-first farming around here, One of the biggest benefits of intercropping is that it diversifies the root systems in a given area of soil, which thereby feeds the soil food web a more complete diet than just one crop alone would. Ideally, you'll be intercropping plants that have different root structures. One may have a shallow fibrous root system, and one may have a deep taproot. When this happens, more areas of the soil are utilized, different microbial communities are serviced, and a wider variety of nutrients are accessed by the crops. And it's not just what's below the ground. With good intercropping, you can also maximize photosynthetic activity above ground by mixing plants that have different heights or leaf shapes so every ray of sunlight is captured before it hits the ground. That's pure regenerative gold right there. A lot of farmers undertake intercropping to increase yields for a given planting area. Because of this, Denise talks about how intercropping has been so important for her tiny urban farm over the years. Another advantage of intercropping is that it can provide some insurance against crop failure. I think we should all keep that tucked in the back of our brains as we experience wider and wider swings in weather patterns. An example happening right now at my farm is the fragrant stock planted in my hoop house, which got really zapped by abnormally cold nights that we had in February. I'm not sure if it'll rebound at this point to produce a viable harvest. So to hedge my bets, I direct seeded Blepurum and Phacelia into those same stock beds, though there'll be something to cut one way or another come spring. 
For this reason, it's always a good idea to have a couple packets of direct sown seeds on hand at all times. Another advantage of intercropping flowers in particular is that it often encourages stems to stretch for the sunlight as the crops compete. Sometimes this can be a pitfall, but if you carefully consider the crops you're mixing, you can usually sort out what will be healthy competition. Another big boon of intercropping is that it can help with weed control. If you've got a slow-growing crop like Lysianthus or some new baby perennials that would require a lot of weeding at the outset, pop a fast-growing crop in there with them and you'll save on weeding as well as increase your yields. As for the downsides of intercropping, most of them can be avoided with some careful thought. The success of intercropping often relies on good timing and crop planning on your part. However, you'll also need to do a good amount of experimenting and may have some failures. Denise and I talk about that too. If you make a poor choice in your cohabitating crops, it can create a bad form of competition, leading to a loss in yields and stem quality in one or both of the crops. You also have to carefully consider the cultural needs of the mingled crops so you know that you can treat both the same and they'll still be happy. For example, when interplanting over your dormant ranunculus corms, you'll want to choose a crop like Celosia that doesn't need a lot of water so that the corms won't rot. And lastly, intercropping has the potential to make harvesting more difficult. So think about that too when choosing what to mix and match out in your field and don't make a big mess of it. Okay, enough out of me. Let's go hear from Denise. Welcome, Denise. I'm delighted you're here. Thank you so much, Jenny. Well, let's start with uh, kind of where I always like to get people to just give us a rundown on their farming operation in particular. What, how long have you been farming? Where do you farm? What's the zone like? Uh, just some of those details, like your acreage and things like that. So you want to yep. give us a breakdown? Yep, totally. We farm in zone 9B, um, which is uh, tropical adjacent. Um, nine, our 9B is very, very different than like a Californian, Mediterranean, East Bay uh, 9B. So we have mild but erratic winters. Um, so we'll have some winters where we never, where we don't freeze at all. We'll have some winters where we, you know, we'll dip maybe into the 20s or low 30s. Um, and we had a historic freeze whenever y'all were in the polar vortex, um, we had like a, you know, old time gardeners were like, you know, old palms, old trees died. So um, it can be erratic also, as we all know, <laughs> weather is changing. Um, mm -hmm. We have a frost right around the corner actually. So um, we uh, grow on, we used to grow on lots of little different gardens throughout the city, um, just urban city, lots usually about the size of a double you know a double lot um and uh the last i guess year and a half um two years ago we got an opportunity to grow on it's 2.7 acres um on the other side of the river so it's in east bank new orleans it's still part of this it's still you know new orleans zip code but it's uh once you get out past the sort of foster cluck of suburban west bank um, it gets really rural really fast. And hmm. so we, um, our 2.7 acres is on a property that's actually 88 acres. Wow. Um, and the property is owned and shared with us by a couple of our friends who um, are vegetable farmers. So the two of us um, share one quadrant of the 88 acres. Our, our fenced off portion is like I said, uh, just under three acres. And 
they are growing maybe on five and mm. continuing to expand. Wow. Um, and the rest is pasture, uh, cattle pasture. Okay. And is that your um, nearly three acres, do you have it all in production at this point or you are? Um... Not entirely. Okay. So at this point, we've got uh, a quarter acre in annual production, a quarter acre in our Spacious perennials, and we're growing out what will be about an acre of annuals, but it's currently maybe maybe a tenth of an acre. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And did you keep your old lots in the city then, or are they all gone? None now? at none at oh, all. One wow. by one by one. Yeah. So I I, I want to jump into nerdy stuff too, but I, I want to tease this apart. So why I am also an urban farmer in Philadelphia and similar to you started on a very small rented plot that was 20 by 40 sweet, uh, 20 by 40 feet uh, wide. And uh, which I don't even know what acreage that was. I think yeah. it was like a 16th of an acre or something. Yeah. And then slowly kept building, looking for space, renting from different places. And yeah. then eventually uh, bit the bullet and bought some land. So I know that process and I know how challenging it can be. And I also know the huge leap of faith it is to move from like a micro set mindset, so to speak, to like I'm taking on a lot of land compared to what yeah. I was comfortable with. So what, what was the impetus for you guys to make that leap? Was there a specific reason like land ownership issues or not yeah, enough production? Yep, that, <laughs> yep that's it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my heart and soul is very much in urban, like mm. really urban farming, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. neighbors, you know, neighbors, kids after school, that whole thing. And um, it was we at some point had five different gardens, a greenhouse in a sixth location, um, a studio at one of our gardens, which was actually just a shed that we put an addition on. I saw that one time though. It was so yeah. cute. It was so darn cute. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cute is the word. Cute is the word for the way that we used to do it. So, you know, the, the bipping, the bopping, the this, the bits, mm -hmm. you know, all over the place. It was really cute. And, you know, we really did make an impact in our, with our, in, in our neighborhood mm -hmm. and, um, but sort of one by one, we kind of knew that we needed to change something up because, uh, it got less and less cute, you know, <laughs> trying to, trying to harvest, you know, creating a harvest schedule at five yeah. different gardens. And yeah. did it get ugly needing... is what you're saying? It stopped being yeah. cute and it got ugly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And um, the real, I mean, the real kind of nail in the coffin was that basically one by one, all of the various landowners um, really did us bad oh. um, in all these different ways at each of the different locations, one by one. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'd always sort of been like, I wish we could just keep a pile of something anywhere. You know, anytime that we had a mulch delivery, we'd have to move it immediately. Any, mm. you know, we, mm -hmm. that whole thing, being a good neighbor. And then um, it was, yeah, it just, I think the other thing is that what we were looking for is more of a sense of permanency um, because we, we didn't spend, you know, we've been operating this business since, 2014 maybe we had not had a single year where we'd had the exact same gardens hmm. you know the wow. exact same configuration oh my god so it was like constantly in flux and so much drama like oh my god did you hear the Thalia garden got sold even though we have a lease and what are we supposed to do and Ugh. um so uh we were looking for a sense of permanency and 
I basically feel like the metaphor of my entire life is that I'm a perennial in a pot just waiting to be planted. So, <laughs> oh, I love um, that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so we knew we were looking for something more, um, more sustainable and more long-term. And mm. currently the lease that we have is it's based on an agricultural model, I think in the Northeast somewhere, but it's a 17 year rolling lease. Oh, wow. Um, so basically, you know, imagine if we signed it in 2020, it would expire 2037. Now it expires in 2039, et cetera. And really, wow. and, you know, we worked on the lease for about a year and a half with lawyers to make sure that it was comprehensive and fair. Um, and it's amazing. Wow. That is incredible. Did you consider purchasing land or it just always seemed to be a better fit to um, to to just continue in a rental model, you know, based on what you had available? You know, we, we thought about it and there was a million different iterations of what we could have done, um, you know, because we need a studio um, and a farm um, and a sort of office. Uh, we were figuring out different possible permutations and combinations of the way that it could go. You know, like we knew that we didn't have enough money to buy everything that we needed. Maybe we, maybe we had enough money for land, but then where would our studio be? And maybe we had enough money for a studio, but then where would our office be and how would we process, you know, like trying to figure all that out. And what we ultimately decided was that, um, you know, com if that commercial rent, you know, we had that shed. I don't mm -hmm. know if I ever told you, I think we paid maybe 250 bucks a month for it. Like oh, I didn't nothing. know you paid rent um, on the shed. <laughs> yeah, well, we did. Um, wow. But uh, I think that um, we realized that pretty quickly that if the real carpet that would get ripped out from under us is if we had to start paying real commercial rent. Real and rent. so we started yeah. thinking about ways that we could consolidate around that. I think that was really smart. That sounds um, like the right decision to make. So yeah, yeah. And the fact that the fact that this just like exact this this perfect um, land like long term mm -hmm. land leasing mm -hmm. situation um, was something that the land owners themselves were also interested in. Mm -hmm. um, that it yeah it was just sort of a, yeah. meant to be I guess yeah. that way. So when you made the decision, well, first of all, okay, I got two questions for for you to follow up with. Um, maybe I'll hit the one first. Uh, do you have advice to other beginner flower farmers who are on tiny little rented plots about how to navigate what what might have been, uh, you know, a, a net a safety net for you that you didn't realize could have existed, or is there none? Like, you got any got any wisdom yeah. in the look back there? <laughs> um, I do, I do, and I think um, ultimately, I think the biggest thing. Thing is be uh, extremely upfront with the fact that, you know, always lead with the fact that agricultural endeavors have both lead time and lag time, mm. the way just, you know, things are in the ground or you have, you know, greenhouse plants that need to get planted and things are in the ground that need to bloom and to be extremely clear with that as upfront as possible and like hammer it in constantly anytime mm. that you're meeting with these people. Um, that they're engaging in uh, a decision that has both pre and post consequences if that, if that decision were to be changed. Um, and the other is to get a really, really, really solid lease. And the truth is, is that many landowners don't wanna sign that, that much of a solid lease mm -hmm. because they're just sort of like, hey, you're cute. You can <laughs> take care of my property while value um, accumulates on it and uh, maintain it for me um, for free. And uh, yeah, make it an asset in the neighborhood. And then when I'm, whenever I'm ready, I'll sell it. Um, and I think that that's ultimately what the arrangements are. I think that as a grower, you just have to know that that's what you're entering into and build as much security as you can around that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. I the the rental arrangements I always had um, required that they give me nine months uh, notice yeah. before I even, and that was nine months. Like, hey, we're planning on switching this, and then I think it also had another three months. So it was basically a full year, like a three month. You got to get so out, you know. <laughs> yeah. Hours too. Okay. Um, so that was the ultimate lease that we ended up settling on. Was that we needed nine months to be able to, from whatever decision was made or from whatever idea was conceived to be able to actually do anything. And, um, and one of the, it was an affordable housing nonprofit Ooh. that we had this, that we had this arrangement with and, um, they, uh, wanted to immediately charge us $500 a month, which was outside of our lease. We had a 10 year lease with them. And, um, ultimately we had to, uh, threaten to sue them <gasps> what? to let that, to let us stay, um, wow. to finish out our season. So yeah, we had to almost, we had to threaten a lawsuit to an affordable housing nonprofit and that just to be able to stay to see our spring crops continue to bloom out. Um, That's so ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. their lawyer, who was a pro, bo- a pro bono lawyer at an affordable housing nonprofit, <laughs> their lawyer was like, what is even going on? Right, right. Like, why do you sign up to be a pro bono lawyer exactly. for affordable yeah. housing just to kick off a wonderful, beautiful flower farm? Wow, what a yeah. what a uh, crisis of uh, of conscience there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. so anyway, you know, just a, a lot of drama, and now mm. it's like at our farm, it's um, peaceful, it's beautiful, it's right on the Mississippi River, and like instead of syringes and used diapers, we have to worry about um, feral hogs. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's great. <laughs> what a, what a trade off. So, all right. So that leads to my second question is uh, it sounds like there weren't a lot of choices in terms of like where to move to and, and, you know, all of that. But what did you consider when you were looking for you're like, OK, I'm making the switch. I'm going from micro farm to something bigger, something permanent. Like, did you look at the soil? Did you look at the location? Like kind of what were the parameters were going through your mind to help other people who might be thinking about this step up? Um, yeah, I think that, you know, for this particular farm, the decision was kind of made for us was just hmm. like this particular, you know, this is an opportunity that is almost better than we could dream, could have dreamed of because we, you know, I don't know if we could invest in 88 acres of property. <laughs> we can't, um, at least not in the city. Um, so, uh, this was like the most pleasant possible happenstance, but I do think that in terms of features of what I would be looking for and things that I've learned from experience have been really helpful. Um, existing fences mm. um are really really great yep i have not i have not always been a fan of fences but i certainly am now um existing fences are great uh nearby buildings um or nearby big trees can actually be an asset mm. um so we had on one of our gardens we had immediate north facing shade from um from a building right next door and that was actually a really special little microclimate um uh in terms of being able to like push out seasonal stuff um, and be able to grow some perennials that were a bit of a, a reach for us. So one is just, you know, and you're thinking about these funky properties is that um, a lot of the existing kind of footprint of where the garden is um, can be an asset to you mm. as a you as a grower. Yeah. Um, you know, one of our gardens, we had this huge deciduous tree in the back third and um, it ended up being the perfect place to plant our dahlias um, because they had full sun in the winter. And then as it started getting hotter and the, and the trees leaped out, then we had afternoon shade. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, one of the un, one of the funny little um, intricacies of being an urban grower in a really micro micro way is that you can actually use the landscape of, that's around you um, to do some cool, you know, tricky stuff. 
Yeah, I love that. I love you're kind of like flipping the script there, like from having to have like perfect property, perfect flatland um, to think about like all the quirks could actually be assets in the end. If you can just like switch your mentality from like, I have to have it perfect to like, what can I use to my benefit? And in fact, like speaking on on the no-till podcast yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like we've never tilled <laughs> yeah not ever because you didn't because have can. the ability right <laughs> yeah it's like you know let's say we tried to push a tiller we'd hit like you know an old yeah. concrete foundation oh, or gosh. bricks or you know old like a mardi gras beads that would mess up the <laughs> mess up the tiller you know um so that um was actually um just a really cool uh experiment for us to um learn that building up above ground hmm. um is great for our climate and um you know, you can do it without any kinds of machinery. And by the time we got to our farm, we were already really well versed in it um, and uh, yeah. in no-till and all that. And so it was really, it was a interesting learning lessons. And I think interplanting actually also, you know, growing on a super, super tiny space, we've had to maximize the space that we have had um, for years. Yeah. And now even on a bigger scale, like when we still only grow a quarter acre of annuals and like on a bigger scale, um, we're still using some of these same practices just because we've learned that it's really cool. It's like, why plant a bread? Why plant a bed twice when you can right. get the same number of once. flowers in one, you know? Right, yeah. yeah. So, okay, let's, let's touch on the building up instead of digging down idea. Um, so how did, I think I remember you told me at one point you were learning like in bed composting and stuff too, like at the old micro farm plot. So A, let's talk about what that is and B, do you still do it? And, and are there some benefits or downsides of it? Yeah. Yeah, we sure do. So, um, it was inspired by, a like a German, I guess, but I learned it through permaculture, um, a technique called hugelkultur, which is, you know, okay, exactly. So, um, you know, deep um, carboniferous matter and then building up, up, up. And so my um, idea of creating these raised garden beds was sort of based on that. So they have a core of um, wood chips, like coarse organic carboniferous matter. Um, On top of that, we'll do some layer of just uh, like organic mass basically we've done coffee shaft before in the past we've done um rice shaft before in the past local products local to us yeah um, but get. what we're really into now that i adore is uh sugarcane bagasse oh which is, this is the, definitely something you could get in the south but i have no idea where we'd get here sugarcane bagasse <laughs> is really amazing because it's, a it's a waste product so it's what's created you know from the woody material of the sugarcane itself and then we can buy it for it's 600 bucks for a 100 yard dump, dumpster oh wow so, that's a lot yeah yeah. And it's like my dream come true of having, you know, organic matter just sitting in a pile, just getting older and more <laughs> and more beautiful. Finally there. So, exactly. <laughs> so um, we add the um, sugarcane bagasse as like a pretty hefty layer and then soil, which we buy um, from a local supplier, soil on top of that and compost on top of that. Okay. And so by when we build these beds, they're really quite lofty, quite tall. And then as they age, they settle, they decompose. And then after, because we're in a subtropical climate, you know, they're decomposed in beautiful, tilthy, gorgeous soil within a year. Yeah. So let me ask you, so just, just roughly estimates that, uh, that wood chip depth is three, five, so many inches. I would say, I would say wood chips, the wood chip layers between four and six inches, the bag ass layer, probably similar between four and six inches, maybe heavier on the six. Um, the soil is closer to eight or even 10 and comp and then compost on top of that. So they are lofty. You're not kidding. They're like a solid 
I don't know what that was yeah. like, uh, almost two feet tall or something. Yeah. They're like knee, they're like knee height probably okay. when we build them and then they settle. Wow. So do you have issues? Uh, I've done, um, some informal hoogles at my farm just to get rid of, you know, stuff generally. Yeah. I've never like tried to produce in hoogles. Do you find that the plant roots, I mean, you must be transplanting into them. Yes. Not yeah. direct yeah. seeding. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah. do you think there's have you ever found there's too many air pockets in that system or it's because you have so much soil on top of the carbonaceous and the organic? Yeah, I think it's, it's the latter. So it's basically, um, and the, like the wood chip material will, will take out any like really big chunks. It's mostly like, you know, shreds, chips, it's like whatever passes through the shredder. Um, and, uh, we, as we build the beds, we use forks, digging forks to pull out the sides of the bed as if you're like squaring them off. And so basically what we're doing, we're creating um, surface area. Like as we add each layer, we're creating a flat surface area um, and pulling out by pulling out the sides, you've got like a wider, flatter top to add to. And as you're doing this process, basically using the fork over and over each layer. Yeah. It's like a pretty settled, nice. Bed. Okay. It mixes it kind of all together a little bit. Okay. Maybe less mix and more like integrate, settle. Mm, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So not like turning it over, but just sort of, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know, like tapping a, tapping a bowl or something where it kind of like yeah. goes down in. Yeah. Cool. So then is water management on these raised hoogle in ground composting beds challenging? Or does it kind of function our, like normal? In, well, you guys have some in much our water, climate. So. No, <laughs> yeah. in our climate, no. In our climate, it's ideal. You know, we yeah. have really, really high atmospheric moisture, and we just have a lot of rain. Okay. Um, and so they're actually like ideal. Hmm. These sort of high lofty hmm. beds. Hmm. Um, I have found out that there are certain bulbs and some things that don't do well. Um, in these really airy beds, uh, and so there's some things that, um, we never plant directly, like sort of you know, in ground in a mm-hmm. flat way, we'll still use our broad fork to kind of pitch okay. it up a little and add, and add a couple layers of compost. Gotcha. Um, just because like, you know, we can get eight inches in one rainfall, like one in like, in, in like two hours. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. So um, wow. having raised beds period is extremely important, but mm-hmm. they're not necessarily, you know, those Perfect. really tall swanky beds. Yeah. So then do you have to redo these every season then to keep them lofty or how lofty do you do it now? Yeah, basically, um, you know, we'll, we are growing, um, more and more in fabric, uh, which I never wanted to do for Mm. other gardens, because like I said, you know, we were changing configurations of gardens all the time and some beds were 20 feet long and some beds were 40 feet long. But, um, so we'll take off the fabric. Um, take out the, take off the fabric and the pathways, do a little cleaning up, do a little reshaping. Um, we'll, um, broad fork recompost. And then for some beds that we're specifically, we're trying to aim for some beds to actually be consistently higher because we're learning that some crops like, um, all of our Amy and, um, Dara mm-hmm. are, uh, we're learning want to be as high above the water table as yeah, possible. They're a root crop, basically. Um, yeah, so ex- they would exactly. want to rot so we planted, out. Otherwise. So we so yeah. we planted them last year. Um, we had a whole, really wet year. We planted them last year. They grew, 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 absolutely beautiful. And then it was apparent they hit the water table and then immediately died. Gorgeous uh. plants that just died. So um, some beds we will continue to add to. I think probably for a few more seasons. Okay. Um, but some beds they're basically you know they're good to go. Yeah. So is this your solution then to basically just essentially like 
you're so close to the water table there being next to the Mississippi and you're just trying to have like water retention and or drainage issues. So this is a good system if people have equally complicated water um, drainage issues, maybe this is a good way to go for that. Absolutely. And because, you know, we're dealing with the old alluvial plain of the Mississippi River, you know, we're right on the other side of the levee. Um, It's really organic rich. Um, but really heavy clay, like Mm. really heavy Mm. clay. Um, And we tried at some point to push a tiller to try to outline the definition of our beds. And it was like a muck fest of 10,000. And so uh, it's part of what makes this work, I think, is the fact that we have so much clay and we're getting capillary action Mm. from the water table um, that like we don't have to irrigate if even if we don't get rain for six six weeks wow yeah wow i have to irrigate if we don't get rain in three days yeah <laughs> it's, it feels like so such a different um prospect because i'm up on a high plateau with nothing but limestone under me so all the water just goes away yeah uh but yeah. i i love hearing the context that you're in and i think at one point you told me something or maybe i read it on your instagram that you had crawfish coming up out of your uh that's one soil. of our most significant that's one of our most, <laughs> most significant pests all right they come i want to just talk about that for like the <laughs> novelty of it because i don't think there's a single other flower farmer in the world that has crawfish as a pest <laughs> so tell we us do. what gives <laughs> so um they exist um both in and adjacent to water and so any any standing water and because we are literally at the mississippi river i mean our water table rises with the river wow um and so uh seasonally we'll have crawfish that start to pop up in in standing water and or in water that's like you know just about at the water table right. and I don't know so much about crawfish biology, but what I do know is that they live in water, but they make these sort of like stacks to provide oxygen to oh, their yeah. colony or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it's those, they build those stacks through the holes in our landscape uh. um, and complete and completely <laughs> decimate whatever plant was in them. No. So what's your solution? Like what's a, what's we don't a, really have one. Have we one. tried. Okay. So we try to, we had a ditch that um, ran through the lowest point in our annual perennial field. Um, and, um, we decided to sort of like fill in that ditch. So it's more like a divot rather than a, yeah. a place to actually hold water. Okay. Um, so there's certain things where it's like, all right, let's eliminate the standing water in the center of our annual field, see what happens. And then this year, which is the second winter that we've been on this property, it's been quite dry and quite lovely. So oh, we, I good. don't know. Okay. Well, maybe fingers crossed it's working out. Yeah. Do yeah. you think that I, I did want to also ask you about why you're growing in landscape fabric, because I don't do landscape fabric here because we're so hot and you yeah. must be bloody well hotter than us. And then I wanted to ask you that question anyway. And now I have this like uh, addendum to it is, do you think if you didn't have the fabric down with the crawfish be as like in your beds like would they maybe do something something else you know they okay so um we have experimented and to answer the second to answer the second part they pop up wherever they pop up okay okay um and so it's fabric or no fabric i think it really has to do with managing the water around it okay i'm not done learning all of the answers Mm -hmm. of fabric oh yeah um i think i think that um originally because of my background, I was just really, really, really fabric shy Mm -hmm. where it's like, why Mm -hmm. on earth would you put something inorganic Mm -hmm. on top of your beds when you can put something organic? Right. Um, and, um, that was my ethos. Um, I've come to realize that, um, fabric, 
used appropriately and I'm learning all of the different ways mm -hmm. um, that work and don't work. Um, and I'm happy to talk about successes and failures, but um, I'm learning that when it's used right, holy cannoli. I mean, when you can weed a bed once yeah. throughout the course of a season, it's, it's just saved us so, 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 so much time. And then because we have Weeds don't ever stop growing in our climate. Oh, that's ever. true. You would have like no downside. We even have <laughs> we even have winter grasses. Like we have it's it's nonstop. Right. Um, and so just learning what maintenance looks like when weeds are so vigorous and go to seed so quickly. Um, just learning what the balance is in between um, you know, the trade-offs of landscape fabric, which there mm -hmm. are many, mm -hmm. um, and just the the sheer possibility right. of this endeavor. Um, yeah. Which it just goes to the, to the point that, you know, every farm has its own context. So there's no right or wrong specific to every single farm. There's, yeah. there's no playbook that applies to everyone. And it definitely, I hadn't even considered the fact that you have weeds that basically never stop <laughs> when you're in yeah. a subtropic climate, obviously they're just you're growing in a jungle, literally, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is like what it's like here for us in July and August. And oh my God, if I had to do that 12 months of the year, I think I would have quit by now. So <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I Exactly. Yeah, like our winter off. our winter weeds are just as vicious as our summer weeds right. and they grow just as quickly. Wow. And, yeah. Wow. So but do you have any issues with heat retention then with the fabric? Because it's just I feel like that would be so challenging in a really hot climate. Planting into it um, when um, the days are hot mm -hmm. is a total no go. And mm -hmm. we've learned that one the hard way. Okay. So it's like, you know, there's certain crops that don't actually care at yeah. all yeah. what they're planted into. Um, but like, you know, we've lost entire um successions of cosmos we've lost mm -hmm. you know tons of amaranths and celosias by planting into fabric that was too hot so um what we've decided is that our summers are like uh our uh summer successions all of our summer successions are planted into mulch not not fabric oh okay um and uh there are certain things that we're learning um that the fabric retains too much moisture um oh. and so uh there are crops like, I'm trying to think like dill, mm -hmm. baby's breath, annual baby's breath, um, certain things that just want whatever, evap whatever evapotranspiration that can possibly happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, sense. yeah. And so we're choosy about fabric. And then the last way where, you know, we've tried, um, what are some other failures like ranunculus and anemones and fabric? Um, we have really, uh, tons of, buttercup weeds mm. like ranunculus family yeah, you know, yeah in weeds. the same family yeah <laughs> in, and um growing them we were like that's why we'll grow them in fabric yeah um, because we have these lookalikes that are so much faster growing that literally grow right next door but um they just they don't like it um or at oh. least not where we are interesting so uh yeah. so there's certain things that we're you know we're learning trial trial by fire but i think in general and we also plant um, I know it is like the biointensive way, the mm -hmm. French intensive way. Uh, yeah. So we aim to plant where all of the fabric is covered up anyway okay. by, by foliage. And so, you know, if, if I were to show you a picture of our garden, you'd see like mulched pathways and then a teeny little strip of black on either side of the pathway and then just green. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it's not just this blank, you know, uh, uh, 
I, almost like parking lot esque, you know, black yeah, fabric no. everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense. And in our, um, we learned that as well in our uh, woody perennials. We were considering like, should we fabric our pathways mm-hmm. at the beginning? Should we not? And you're just like, you have a sea of black plastic <laughs> or black fabric surrounding these little baby plants. It's yeah. Not gonna work. Yeah. It's just a heat sink and it gets really, yeah. yeah. I even, I lost yeah. some of my woody perennials when they're just small liners and uh, in black fabric here that wasn't, you know, yeah. I didn't have the whole field blanketed in it there were nice plenty of green grass around them but they still cooked you know yeah. on those really hot days so yeah yeah um so let's see where was i going to go from here <laughs> oh well let's talk about interplanting because that was like really what i wanted to get like nerdy with you but I, I also have all these other questions about oh wait wait nope nope i take it back we're gonna go there but first <laughs> because what other what, uh, what other uh flower farmer do i know that contends with wild hogs i'm pretty sure there might be a few that's not quite <laughs> as rare but i do want to yeah. ask uh is this where the fencing comes in or yes. yeah okay so exactly. we have deer so... here you have wild hogs there is that it <laughs> exactly and we okay. did no, we didn't know. It was like a true detective story where when we first got there, you know, we were laying out um, black silage tarps as the first process of our no-till. And then we'd come occasionally and see all the silage tarps kind of fucked up. And like, huh. oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. Oh, no, it's Messed okay. Up. This is not an and, FCC um, uh, uh, show. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> um, and then like big holes. And we're just like, what's going on? Yeah. And then I noticed, you know, it's like I looked at the freaking tracks and saw the two, the hoops, you know. Like the, yeah, exactly. The and yeah. I was like, I have to say, and Annie and Cheryl who grow vegetables, they grow it on like a, a they're, the part where they grow is maybe at least a thousand feet away, 1500 okay. feet away. And they're more of an open space. We're kind of tucked into the woods. Okay. Um, and so they hadn't dealt with it. So it took us a while to figure out what was going on. And then we really knew what was going on. It was like quite obvious. And then they started going for the root balls of, they dug up all of our olive trees no. and our Japanese magnolias. Yeah. It's really a bummer. Wow. But, um, but we put up a fence, you know, just like a really simple T-post hog panel fence um, and knock on wood so far so good. Okay. So they don't like root under and try to like get through. I imagine if they were um, curious enough, they mm-hmm. would because mm-hmm. um, feral hogs are like, from what I've been reading, like pretty destructive if yeah. they want to be. Yeah. Um, so our I, our hope is that we just keep this fence intact and and that'll be it. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, did you ever actually like run into them? Are they like scary? Somehow no, in my mind, I'm no, picturing like Chris, wild boars in the jungle. <laughs> um, no, but Chris, our farm manager set up one of those, um, like GoPro cams. Oh, yeah, or actually, yeah. I don't yeah, even like know a, what it is. Like a, a wild, like a trail cam. Yeah, like a trail yeah. cam. Yeah. 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 A trail cam to, um, to see them coming. And I actually don't even know what the, <sighs> what ended up, whether he saw them or oh, not. That's but, funny. Wow. Yeah. Oh. The, the weird, uh, it's just, I, I love it because it's so, um, everything you're contending with is so completely opposite with, with what I contend with here. And I love hearing the stories and, and thinking about it. I feel like we're pretty topsy-turvy compared to a lot of places. <laughs> <laughs> you are. It takes a special passion to grow a NOLA, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about interplantings because I know that's been something that you've had to, uh, you know, figure out some some uh, creative ways of fitting more into smaller spaces, and then also, yeah. you know, interplanting can really help. So, just to break it down for listeners who might not understand what interplanting is, it basically means that it's also sometimes called intercropping. So, interplanting or intercropping are kind of interchangeable, and it means that you're going to plant one crop and then also have a second crop 
crops sharing that bed space intermixed with the other crop. You can even have like many crops interplanted together, mixed together. It basically means instead of planting a row of only zinnias, then it will be a row of zinnias and marigolds and blah, 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 um, however creative and funky you want to get. And the goal is to either help with um, succession planting in tight spaces. So where if you are on a very micro space, maybe you don't you can't do succession planting in the traditional way of like one whole bed gets flipped and goes to the next thing. And instead you have to start the seeds while another crop is finishing. So that's one reason to intercrop. And then another reason to intercrop is for diversity in the soil, to have more diverse root systems in the soil, which really goes to help with photosynthesis. Uh, and the photosynthesis creates more root exudates, which then feed soil biology, which feeds root plants, blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> it's just a, it's revving up the cycle of life whenever you can intermix crop root systems together, particularly if you can get crops that one crop might be airy and loose and not have big leaves. And then another crop has big fat leaves, but grows really tall. It honestly goes back very much to the indigenous um, heritage of the three sisters, where it's corn, beans, and squash, that kind of thing. But as flower farmers, we can adopt some of that know-how too. And But yet it's not very well talked about, I don't feel like, in flower farming yet. I think veggie farmers have, have moved forward with, you know, bringing some of this yeah. old wisdom back. But we've kind of missed the boat so far. So I wanted to get, you know, yeah. into this. So tell me some of your intercroppings and then I'll tell you some of mine. So let's just, that you go first. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I got into inter, intercropping um, as a vegetable farmer and at using flowers at, as, inter, as hmm. you know, planting flowers into vegetable beds. Oh. Um, and so that's, that's how I got started in the whole thing. Um, and then it was encouraged you know, perennially by growing in tiny spaces um, and wanting to have a, uh, you know, my background as a school gardener, mm -hmm. wanting to have a, a garden that looked pretty um, as a value, you know, mm -hmm. sort of as a primary value. And, you know, when you have multiple brand new cleared beds, all, you know, pulled up and yeah. whatever at the same time, it's not, it's not as beautiful as so you could just pull a couple things and so on. So, um, this time of year, I'm trying to, so I've got a little list in front of oh, me. Um, I would say one thing we posted on our Instagram a while ago um, that people had a lot of questions about was our interplantings with our sweet peas. Mm, so yeah. um, we do, uh, we keep, we have a 30 inch beds and um, our sweet peas, we sew it down the center of the bed on uh, T posts with Hortonova trellising. And then on either side, of the bed running lengthwise. So if you can imagine the sweet peas running down the center and then on either side of the bed running length, lengthwise, we have um, uh, four inch spaced holes um, on out, like on the outside of okay. where from the, leading from the center to the edges. Okay. Um, and so if we're planting sweet peas down the center, one thing that we learned is that um, one time cut um, clean um, plants are really, really great to plant um, alongside of our sweet peas. Hmm. Um, and especially because, you know, the sweet peas, if they're running, you know, they're creating a pretty strong shade line, mm -hmm. um, they'll, the, the crops that you plant there will end up lasting longer than the ones in the field or will bloom later than the ones in the open field because they've got that additional shade and additional right. protection. Okay. So the things that we plant alongside of our sweet peas are things like nigella, the larkspur, oh, yeah. um, 
uh, those are all the things that, um, you know, they're, the sweet peas are up and trained on the trellis by the time that these plants start really getting height. And okay. then at that point, and the plants themselves are really clean. They're not branchy. They're not snaggly. They're not messy. You know, you do a bottom cut of them. Maybe they get a little bit tangled up in the, in the little sweet pea tendrils, but you know, you cut them at the bottom, sort of tease them out. And it's a really um, great way of you being able to use that space. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and also thinking about the timing of things. So it's like Nigella, Bapleurum larkspur. Those are all really nice because they're one cuts, but then we'll do things um, where you just make sure that the timing of when each crop ends is about the same um, because, you know, you don't want, if the sweet peas are all tuckered out, you mm -hmm. don't necessarily want these two little dinky lines on either side, just kind of sticking around. Yeah. Um, and like the summer equivalent of the sweet pea along with nigella burplum larkspur is um like sunflowers and hyacinth beans hmm. so the hyacinth beans were you know they're planted at the same time yeah. hyacinth beans are up and on the trellis by the sun by the time that the sunflowers are emerging and then um the sunflowers are cut and done these are single cut sunflowers the sunflowers are cut and done by the time that the hyacinth bean gets too large and in charge so um, with the hyacinth beans, I feel like they would go bonkers, but I guess you're growing the sunflowers so early in the process that it's not. Exactly. Okay. So imagine if you're planting it at about the same time and a sunflower is 50 days, it's like they're out and done by the time that the um, hyacinth bean gets to like, yeah, okay. early. Yeah. And I think that goes to the point that interplanting uh, is, it comes down a lot to timing, to being aware of how each of the plants is going to you know, operate. It's maybe not for the newbies. <laughs> you know, if you don't I know wrote... how a plant grows, maybe wait till you know how a plant grows. <laughs> so that's, I mean, this, I have to say that this is like one of the coolest things is that these years of accumulated experience and it's really, it is, it's just years yeah. of accumulated watching, right? Yeah. Years of accumulated yeah. failing, years of accumulated trying. Um, and I wrote on my little notes right here, the key, <laughs> timing, timing, Woo. Ti understanding timing and understanding the rhizosphere. Those are the yeah. two things that I think are, um, you know, you really get to know your plants. When do mm -hmm. they get bushy? When do they shoot up? Mm -hmm. um, what time are they done? You know, mm -hmm. uh, and because the key to, I think, successful intercropping is that um, you're really maximally using the bed. And so if you can get two full-on beautiful crops in one single bed by knowing, you know, when one emerges and when one comes out by the time mm -hmm. the other one fills up. Um, I think that's what ends up really working. Um, and another thing we do this time of year that I think maybe even you commented on yeah. was our stock cabbage candy tuft bed. Oh yeah. Let's talk about this. Also, I've yeah, never so, grown candy tuft, so you're going to have to talk about that too in general. <laughs> um, so, uh, our stock and cabbage, you know, um, they're both single cuts. Mm -hmm. Um, they want to be grown really, really close together. Mm -hmm. And uh, for us, stock is done first, then cabbage is done. Mm -hmm. And by the time that, so stock emerges, it gets tall fast before the cabbages or candy tufts start to shoot out. By the time stock is ready to be harvested, mm -hmm. um, then you have the cabbages left over. And those cabbages are, you know, you, um, you can defoliate them. And so you've got a pretty open floor mm -hmm. by that point. And then the candy tufts that have just been kind of sitting there, they're pretty slow to get mm. going. Okay. Um, and so those candy tufts that have just been sitting there, by the time you clear out the stock, by the time you clear out the cabbage, the candy tufts are established and they're just like, boom, ready. Let's go. Wow. So yeah. are you planting all three of those at once? Probably not because stock's got to go in first, right? 
Um, we plant basically all three at once. Wow. Okay. Um, the, the candy tuft, we ended up throwing in later as um, we had holes in the stock in the cabbage. Um, the stock in the cabbage is like a tried and true one for us. And so we'll do something where it's like, you know, uh, uh, maybe the stock down the center cabbages on the edge or, okay. you know, just like little. So it's not um, completely mixed together. It's not like, uh, no, yeah. I don't know, like a chess, like board. an actual checkerboard. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, no, okay. not necessarily like that. And then in the similar pattern, we do our um, calendula and snapdragons. Mm. So snapdragons, we plant every other hole on the edges. Um, and so you have what's sort of a, a ring kind of, if you can imagine a long rectangular bed where every other hole has calendula, the calendula and the snapdragons are really awesome. The calendula is there for us, the first to bloom. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, you know, not that useful. Yeah. We don't use a shit, we don't use a shit ton of it, um, yeah. but it is our first, but it is our first bloom. Yeah. And it's really nice to have it. It's the only um, reason I so, still glow, grow calendula is because it's always yeah. first out of the gate. Otherwise I hate it. I can't deal with the stickiness. It drives me nuts. Uh, exactly. But, but when you just plant it here, and but when you just plant it here and there in your snapdragons, mm. you don't have to care about it as much, yeah. you know, in terms of like a, a big nasty crop. Um, and they, um, because of the plantings, they get really tall, like really, really beautiful long stems. Wow. Um, and You're so, so wise. So wise. <laughs> it just, um, and just so like, it's like liberates me from having to plant a 50 foot bed space of calendula alone, which I'm always like, do I have to no, do this? We so we sew maybe like two seventy twos of we took yeah, maybe two seventy twos of mixed varieties and we just tuck them in alongside of our snapdragons and then they're just there and then the bed is really pretty and that we get extra long stems and yeah. I love it. So does the, do you, in your climate, do snapdragons continue to produce beyond the calendula or is that kind of like, you're going to flip that bed all at once then? They, we end up flipping that bed all at once. Okay. Um, so okay. they both, they both tucker out as the days start getting pretty warm. Um, and maybe the snapdragons could hang on a little longer, mm -hmm. but we've got other successions behind them. So yeah. that we yeah. don't, that we don't interplant. Um, and so we just sort of cut once the warm days set in, we just call it a day and clear the bed. Okay. Okay. Let me ask you a follow-up question to something you said earlier when you were saying, like, it's important to know the root rhizosphere of each of your intercroppings. Yeah. I feel like I'm not even attuned to that as much as I need to be. What has been your method of understanding the rhizosphere of a given crop um, over time? Or you just uh, did a lot of trial and error and, and then just could tell that something was working or not. Were you pulling up roots and really paying attention to a root system or just observing how the plants were cooperating? I feel like it was every single thing that you've just mentioned. Okay, great. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's been, so it's, um, through a combination of observations. So this is actually just like looking at the way plants grow mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. ground. Also, because I start so many in the greenhouse, you have sort of sense of what the rhizosphere is. Um, and so I've got a pretty good observed sense of how quickly the roots grow, um, how fibrous they are, um, whether they're more like, and for me, it's not, an, while it is a scientific approach, it's certainly not an exact science. And so I think that basically I form them into two different categories. Mm -hmm. One is um, a sort of fibrous, mat, matty, wide, and the mm -hmm. other is a more contained or specifically taprooted. Okay, gotcha. Um, and so uh, I think that, um, and that's also true, I mean, above the ground, where you basically, I'm looking, is it like messy and wild above the ground, or is it sort of like straight and kind of more upright above the ground? I'm looking both above and below, and I think 
um, what I've noticed is that um, the easiest, the easiest things I found that um, grow most successfully, kind of no matter where they are, are uh, taprooted things. Oh, okay. And so there are things that um, they're just really happy companions to other things. Mm-hmm. Um, those are things that sometimes we let them continue to volunteer. Like now we've even started sewing some stuff specifically so that it will self-sew in like our bulb beds, for example. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, um, and then the other are, uh, the other thing that I find is, uh, really lends well to this process is something that is, um, a self-sewn perennial, hmm. um, that only has like one moment. So I'm thinking of like, um, or not, not necessarily self-sewing, but also, uh, like clumping or, okay. or spreading. Just like a smaller, so, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Perennial. So, um, we end up using like, uh, yarrow and oregano as ground covers all the time, oh. um, on, t- on top of our bulb beds. Okay. Um, we do the same thing with Rudbeckia triloba and mountain mint, um, where, you know, we have <clears throat> beds that maybe have like a crocosmia and we've got, you know, the crocosmia is just growing up through a bed of yarrow, or we have a bed of, um, daffodils and there is, um, Rudbeckia triloba on top of those daffodils. And the idea is that, Um, you know, these bulbs are really, they come up, they're really narrow, um, or what's above ground is really narrow, their moment happens, and then they're completely done. And so you think about what are the other, what else can bloom in that bed, right, that the narrow little daffodil can just shoot right through. Um, And, and so I found that these smaller leafed things like Rebecca Trilober, that they stay small until they're huge, or mountain mint, that it's like, or yarrow or oregano, all of these things that they're small leaved, anything that's below them can emerge through them. Mm -hmm. And then when they have their moment, um, they die back and then you still have a productive ground cover. Yeah. That's a great productive bed. Yeah. A really good take on it because those, those, um, perennials also, well, I don't know in your climate, but here they would be completely died off, um, at the time the daffodils are emerging. So it's like, they're not, they're not really competing at the time when the daffodils need the sunlight. Uh, and by the time they, the perennials are getting a bit bigger and bushier, the daffodils are already yellowing and and going to bed. So yeah, exactly. That's a great idea. So we do that with, um, yarrow and oregano. We do that with Rebecca Triloba mountain mint. We do that with bronze fennel. Hmm. Um, and then, um, the other thing that I was going to say is, uh, one, another really cool perennial planting Mm -hmm. that we have is, um, Dutch iris and cardoons. Oh, Um, wow. What a combination. It's very pretty. Oh, Um, wow. But what is the root of a cardoon like? I mean, I grow cardoons too, but they seem so massive. How does this work? Tell me more. They they basically are. And it has to do with the fact that Dutch iris are so small um, and have such insignificant bulbs and insignificant roots. And so basically we have a a bed of perennial cardoons and they uh, don't necessarily want to die back Uh um, in the winter, but if they... um, if we don't get a freeze, you know, we'll, we'll kind of shrink them back. And we have Dutch iris in those beds that are usually up and wow. harvested by Valentine's day, um, wow. or early March at the very latest. And so we'll do like one hack off of the cardoon leaves to give the Dutch iris a chance to, to jump. And then by the time the Dutch iris are already done, 
the cardoons are starting to fill back out again. Wow. I am so going to try this because I have cardoons growing perennialized in one of my hoop houses. And they, yeah. this time of the year, they have, we get such cold. I mean, we we're nine degrees yesterday. So, you know, right. they're like, Bleh. Right. <laughs> totally I mean, sometimes like... it's taking advantage. It's taking advantage of the fact that they would like sort of die back yeah. anyway in the cold. Right. Yeah. 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 So we could totally tuck in some iris in there and get a, a little head start on that. So, wow. You are, you're a brilliant person. I got to say. So. I'll tell you, Jesse. Uh, I mean, not Jesse. I'll tell you, Jenny. I think that the thing that um whatever that expression is that uh the waste not wait the waste not whatnot or whatever <laughs> i don't know basically what i'm trying to say is you got to make the most of what you got yeah, and we had yeah. not very much for a very long time right, so right. um you know you got I've, creative I've, when you're literally just like oh my god i have a box of crocosmia or like oh shit i've got a whole flat of, of yarrow coming you know it's like right. where are you gonna put it you're like okay let's put it in there <laughs> I love it. Some of the, uh, well, I'll talk about some of the interplantings I've done um, that I found worked really well that are just kind of a, a very similar to some of the ones that you said. But uh, this past season, I put sunflowers, the quick blooming 50 day sunflowers in my dahlia patch. So I overwinter yep. my dahlias here in the ground. So they're perennial, essentially, much like we were talking about perennials already. You know, they don't have any growth in the springtime. It's a huge, you know, it's like a quarter acre of my farm as in perennialized dahlias, it's a kind of a waste of space, frankly. <laughs> and so uh, I really wanted to get a crop off of them faster. So we grow sunflower transplants in the greenhouse. So we're starting the transplants here. Uh, I guess we started them in early April last year. And our last frost date is April 15th. And so basically a couple of weeks before frost, the last frost date. And so we put out a nice beefy 72 plug uh, sunflower transplant that we plant into the dahlias once we take the tarps off. And that worked so beautifully. And we had hundreds of sunflowers to harvest um, before the dahlias even really got rolling very much. And it only worked because it's a, a 50 day single stem sunflower like we'd never do like the big branching ones in there it'd be a disaster <laughs> so and then once the sunflowers were done we just cut them off at the ground so at harvest time just hacked them off at the ground one and done um, the variety we used this past year was horizon i'll use that one again but i'm gonna look for another one too just to have a different you know there's only so many stems of one particular sunflower you need at one time <laughs> so yep. but that was cool because that went into our early bouquets it worked out really well um, so that's one. And I think sunflower single short, short season or short maturity sunflowers can be really handy around the farm because they're such a different uh, plant uh, habit structure than a lot of the other flowers that we grow. You know, just one yeah. short, fast stalk, the equivalent of yeah. like corn, basically. Uh, so I think I'll be plugging in playing sunflowers in a lot of other places. And sunflowers have one of those like uh, deeper tap roots that mines up minerals. It's not really a tap root. I shouldn't call it tap root, but a deeper root system that will mine up minerals from the subsoil that uh, something like a lysianthus is never going to touch. So it's really handy to kind of mix up the the soil um, mineral base and biology in there. So that's one that worked really well. Uh, and then radishes and lizzies has been one that I've done in the past. Cool. And my, <laughs> yeah, I have no use for the thousands of radishes that we got for the record. I'm not. I was going to ask. <laughs> we would just eat them on like lunch break. I don't know. It was like had zero need for radishes. But I'll explain my logic because um, every year, 
it's there's still a lot of weeding with Lysianthus, you know? I mean, everybody knows how much of a pain in the ass Lysianthus is to weed. They're so slow growing. And then the other thing, speaking of rhizospheres, uh, is that, you know, Lizzie's, for me at least here, have the wimpiest root system ever. Same. Like, yeah, I mean, God, I hate those things. <laughs> I love yeah, the flower, same. hate the plant. And so it just felt like... They couldn't compete with the weeds. And if we had aggressive weeds in the bed, then we were just pulling the the lizzies out when we were pulling the weeds. So it was like, okay, I need something else in that bed that will grow as fast or faster than any weeds. But when we pull it, it's not like there's this fibrous root system that has engulfed the lizianthus and now we're yanking um, the lizzies too. So radishes was it. I don't know. I don't know why. I just picked them because it seemed like radishes are fast uh, and they are fast, you know, they're like, what, a 30-day crop or something. Yeah. They're so, yeah. so fast. So uh, we actually did – so we plant the Lysianthus in rows in the bed like normal. Um, and I forget, we do four-inch spacing for Lysianthus, which I think means we get eight – eight rows in a bed. Uh, and then we just uh, planted, transplanted those first. And then um, after they were a little settled in, we did a sowing of radish seeds down between each bed, just direct sowed radish seeds. And and then, yeah, we I think we did a total of three successions on them the last time because you can just like yank out the radishes yep. so easily the moment they get too big. Um, but they do put on, the radishes put on a nice leaf canopy, which shades out the other weeds. It was... It was great. So uh, that's one that's a keeper in my book is to do that. And then we have something to snack on. (laughs) And then the other thing we do a lot around my farm is uh, when corms go dormant. So ranunculus and anemones, we leave those in the ground here. I don't think you could probably leave them in the ground for you. They'd probably rot out. (laughs) We leave them in the ground just so we don't have to pull them. But um, And we've tried saving them. It's not worth it. Um, But most of them rot. Occasionally we'll get a like, oh, look how cute. One one survived. (laughs) Well, here we have such good drainage. Uh, I can leave mine in the ground, which is unusual. Not every flower farmer should try leaving your corms in the ground unless you have very good drainage. Because dormant uh, anemones and ranunculus really want to be dry over the heat of the winter or of the summer. So, but anyway, we direct seed uh, cosmos and zinnias into our dying off. So once the, the... um, the anemones and the ranunculus seem to be yellowing up pretty well. You don't want to put the direct seeding in there before the plants are yellowing because otherwise the seeds won't get enough sunlight to really germinate properly. So you wait until the plants are getting fairly yellow and then just direct seed in. Uh, and usually we just give them like one deep watering to get them to germinate and then kind of leave off watering from there. I'm not watering heavily. Both cosmos and zinnias don't need a ton of water to produce. So that's the other key there is to not put a water hog into the same yeah. bed that you need to water yeah. all the time. But that works that great. Yeah, they they nev- their root systems collaborate nicely. You know, we've never had anything strangled out. Or um, And then when the cosmos and the zinnias are done, we're just cutting them off at the base. So it's not like when we we don't yank out roots here. So yeah. that, that means that the corms stay in place. So um, yeah. and then the other one that was like a happy accident this year, but I am definitely replicating uh, this coming season and probably thereafter is that I had a bed in the hoop house that I was just a really it had been in Celosia. But then it was too uh, hot still here. This would have been in September. It was too hot here still to plant the snapdragons that I had planned in putting in for overwintering. So for us, we plant our snapdragons in the fall and they bloom in the spring. 
because they don't like our stupid heat <laughs> in this in the late uh, August. So I was like, oh, well, I've got like 30 days between when we're pulling the Solosha out and then when we're going to put in the Snapdragon. So let me just throw some buckwheat seed in there because, you know, it's quick. It's fast. I wanted to put something in to have some 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 you know, photosynthesis yep. happening. And then um, it came time to plant the the snapdragons and the buckwheat was looking good, but it hadn't gone to seed or anything yet. And I thought, well, I don't know. We'll just like, we'll just plant them together. I don't know, because it was still really hot. That was the impetus. Yeah. Like it was still really yeah. hot. And I was like, okay, maybe the buckwheat will shade out the soil and the snapdragons won't be so bad. Um, and so we did. We planted straight into the buckwheat. And then at one point, the buckwheat was going to go to seed because it hadn't gotten cool enough yet for it to die off. So we just took uh, electric hedge trimmers and went across the top of it. The little um, snapdragon seedlings were only... I don't yeah. know, two, three inches tall. So we could basically shave off the flower heads of the buckwheat and left it stand there. And then um, then the buckwheat died the first frost that came along and was super cold. And oh my gosh, Denise, can I tell you, those snapdragons are the healthiest snapdragons I've ever grown. And in that hoop house, we have four beds in total. And so only one of the beds got this treatment. And those plants have been so much more resilient to yeah. the fluctuations up and down and that soil has stayed nice and light and you know you can just tell it's got like yeah. you know life in it versus the other ones they're good it's not like terrible but it's a notable difference and so now I'm like hey this is, this is a good combination <laughs> so, yeah that's very cool yeah, yeah yeah I just think the buckwheat is so non-threatening to other you know like it yeah. it plays nice so yeah um, we yeah. No, go ahead. We'll just yeah. like stomped. We'll just like stomp down. There are certain cover crops. We have to be really careful about the cover crops that we use are mm. in the warm season because some of them are just like monstrous. Yeah. Cause but you have no is, killing. <laughs> exactly. There is no yeah, killing. There's um, no killing. <laughs> but uh, buckwheat is a perfect example where it's like, we'll sow it and then we'll just kind of like, you know, crimp it, stomp yeah, it. Yeah. 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 And then like open up a little space yeah. and plant right into it. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny how like it's so fast growing and yet it's so wimpy at the same time. It's just really easy yeah. to manipulate buckwheat. So yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot of potential in there. So uh, yeah, th so those were my 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 favorite intercroppings I've done yet. Um, and I really wanna, I'm so inspired by the whole list that you gave me because now I, I just took a bunch of notes and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm definitely doing the calendula and snapdragon, the cardoon and iris. Um, my stock's already in the ground, so I can't do it this year, but I'm definitely gonna do it next year. So I yeah. love, I love all of those. So, um, yeah, that was, that was super fun. I want to talk just very um, yeah. briefly about interplanting failures. Oh, yes, yes. Please tell me your failures. So I feel like we've done a really good job of saying the key to interplanting is knowing the timing, knowing the growth habit, both above ground and below ground. and um, many, many short season, single cut things are going to be good interplanters. Um, so I'll tell you, I've got two examples of really bad interplanting. Mm, yeah. One is um, Scabiosa and Gladiolus. So I was like, mm. oh, it'll be perfect. The Glads will just kind of be like the netting kind of for the Scabiosa. And that was my thinking, but really, honestly, they just both get big. They both bloom at the same time. And they're both top heavy when they're blooming. And so it ended up just being uh, like a freaking mess. Um, 
And then speaking of other freaking messes is that the things that you don't necessarily want in our plant are things that are really messy. So um, like coreopsis, baby's breath, saponaria, certain things where it's just like, you a know, tangle. It, exactly. Yeah. It will be a tangle. You don't want to involve that tangle when there's like another plant that you don't want to pull or another plant that you're trying to be conscious of or, con con you know. Um, so yeah, things that are pretty clean, I think are also lend themselves pretty easily to interplanting. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of feel like interplanting with a plant that does get big and bushy is hard, except when it's a perennial that's going to die down and leave yeah. open space. But anything that, yeah. like I was trying to think, I, I don't think I could imagine interplanting with cosmos and zinnias while they are big plants like putting something into them. Like it's one thing to direct seed them after another plant's died off, but yeah, yeah. I can't imagine putting, cause they're just kind of like, they're like trees almost. It's like, you're not gonna really interplant with trees. So yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, really consider the plant canopy and habits and not the tangly bits. So I like, yeah. I like I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> I feel like we need to like start a, a study group on interplantings of flowers, like just some like, you know, hive mind nerdy bit of uh, just I just feel like um, I've made some pretty catastrophic mistakes. I was like, ooh, that one was did not, not work out the way I thought it would. So um, yeah. Yeah. Learning from And failures. then you just like avoid the bed because it's a mess and right. then you never harvest yeah. anything. And, I yeah. know. Isn't that the worst? That like emotional downtroddenness that comes when you're like, I just really fucked that up. Like, and you just, yeah. you just want to walk away from it. I've learned that it took a long time to like, just like own the failure and mow it down. Like that's like yeah. at this point, even if it's like, no, we could maybe like, we could probably get like two bunches out of that if we work at it. I'm like, nope, mower ring. Yeah. Mine is, um, there's always next year. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm going to write this off. This didn't work. There's always next year. And I'm here to say after 14 years of flower farming, I still say there's always next year. You never, yeah. you never get it right, ever. <laughs> uh, wow. I Okay. So um, any other thoughts on interplanting before I, I steer us another direction? No, that was basically it. If the other thing that I wanted to say, there's just one more is that um, we will also cover crop hmm. um, alongside of our perennials or sometimes right even on top of our perennials. Hmm. Um, and uh, that's just a fun way of for things that we're not going to move and for things that we don't necessarily have, we're um, uh, not going to continually add compost, for example. Yeah. You know, um, we'll have things like uh, we will... So, uh, English peas, so where our, um, in echinacea were planted, yeah. we'll sow our English peas right, like basically on top of them on either so, side of them. So, wait, uh, um, the non-vegetable grower here, I think English beans mean like pea shoots, like, like edible peas, or is this something different because I'm that edible stupid? Peas, <laughs> edible peas that we grow, there's three varieties that we grow. One we grow that has purple pods, one that we grow that has yellow pods, and one that we grow that just has really pretty purple flowers. And we use them as yeah. um, like foliage and CSA bouquets yeah, 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 and yeah. also just to eat. Yeah. Um, Can you eat the flowers so, too? Yeah. Ooh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That sounds They're delicious. beautiful. I mean, and, and these peas are, these peas are amazing. And the peas themselves have a pretty small footprint. Like the root of a pea is not very extensive. Okay. Um, and so, but, um, we'll do it over the winter season when some of our, like our echinacea, for example, are dormant. Um, and so we just have this like nourish this nitrogen fixing, nourishing additional rhizosphere to add to our echinacea bed. I love that. So how do you terminate that later then? Are you mowing it down or you just, they die out anyway? Once they, they basically, yeah. 
Exactly. Okay. Once, once it gets hot, they, okay. um, they die out, they get powdery mildew, which is not a problem for echinacea, you know, so they'll, they'll usually tucker out and then we maybe give them one cut at the base yeah. after they're, after they're on their way to tuckering. And then we just remove the, and then, then we just remove the trellising. Wow. How do you, how are you planting the peas? Because don't those need to be like buried in the soil? Like they're like sweet peas, I assume. Sorry. Again, I'm, I'm letting yeah. you realize how bad I am yeah. at vegetables. <laughs> yeah. We actually, we just direct sow peas. Like, let's say, you know, we've got, um, an echinacea that, um, you know, has a footprint of maybe two or three inches. Yeah. Um, we'll just sort of, you know, one, two, three, four around the echinacea, just pop in little pea seeds. Okay. And okay. then they grow just on top of each other in a tangle. And then we just put up a little Hortonova uh, trellis. And then when the peas are done, we just take it all down. Oh, okay. So it's really not, it's not like you have to have a special like Jang seeder or any of that kind of like fancy. No, no, way you're or... just like pop, pop, yeah, pop, just pop, hand, just, like, you know, yeah, just putting yeah. them in. Okay. Wow, that sounds very doable. So maybe I will get some pea seeds even before the winter's over because we're we're frozen here anyway. So we wouldn't plant them yet as it is. So yeah, I think um, Baker Creek has my favorite purple potted ones, mm. and then Johnny's has the yellow the yellow ones. And there's um, it's actually a cover crop called Maxim. Oh, okay. Peas that I just happen to find like they hold up really, really beautifully um, as a cut, oh. and just have really pretty purple flowers. And you're getting those from Johnny's or is that another uh -huh. place? Okay. Yeah, both from Johnny's. Okay, cool. Thank you for that um, magic little tidbit because that, I think that that's one thing I've been on a mission to find. Oh, wow. We could so go into a cover crop dive spin now too, but uh, <laughs> you know, I've been on this mission to figure out how to make cover crops also useful. I mean, it's obviously important for them to be a cover crop. You don't want to extract yeah. so much from them that they lose the value of a cover crop. It can't be like an outright cash crop. But I do think, especially in this capacity, it's like a vegetable. It's a different plant family. Yeah, we have sweet peas, but you're not going to put sweet peas. Well, here, I'm not going to put sweet peas all over my farm. It's too expensive and it's too much of a pain in the ass because they don't yeah. grow well for us. So, but this yeah. sounds like a lot more doable, a lot cheaper um, to get that nitrogen fixation but then also have something you can cut which is fantastic so exactly and they sew them by the ounce or by the pound oh, and so it's like great. it's really easy to just pop them in yeah you know? yeah do you so are you literally trellising them they're they're climbing this this um maxim one or are you just letting them sprawl somehow they're climbing we trellis we trellis them because we do use them for cuts okay. um, like in our early like we start usually start with our csa in march i have a feeling it's going to start by valentine's day this year we've had a really warm winter wow. but um we keep them pretty neat okay so because it, it's really easy to just you know do like a, a market style cut okay gotcha. gotcha um and we put up we just have uh I got learned about them from Steve and Mandy at Three Porch. Hmm. They're like, they're rebar posts that I think are meant to be used for electric fencing. Oh yeah, they have actually... the little hooks on them. Yeah, yeah. No, we use ones that are just like pure rebar with like a little like stepper inner. Yeah, okay. Anyway, the long and short of it is that we just basically use those little stakes. We don't do a whole T-post thing. We just okay. use those little stakes with some um, portnova. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. Yeah, and it sounds like it's it's not the end of the world if they sag over or something. It's not like sweet peas that you're going to be super yeah. fussy about. So exactly. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Definitely adding that. So. 
Um, all right. Well, I will just, this was not on the agenda, but I'm just also going to momentarily sing my praises for dwarf sorghum as a cover crop that you can also cut. Have you tried that one at all? You should, if you haven't. No. So I don't know how sorghum does for you guys. I would assume it would do fairly well, but it does like a little too well. Actually, Yeah. That's what I was thinking. It might be a little aggressive, but if you, um, if you're good about harvesting the seed heads, then you shouldn't have any like long-term, um, thuggishness coming through, but it is, it's a massive magical cover crop in my mind because it's the dwarf variety make sure it's like dwarf um and then i got that from deer creek uh cover crop seed company and um so it's only like i like to say boob high uh so it's not gonna like tower over you or take over the world uh but it grows so quick and fast and it makes tons of biomass and it's a really good fast uh windbreak too if you're you've got a windy spot that you want to try and do something but you don't want to give up the valuable bed space and then it makes just really lovely um, I, I don't want to say they're like mini, but you know, it's just little sorghum, uh, little sorghum seed heads that are great in mixed bouquets with nice little stems. So, uh, oh, I really okay. love that. Yeah. yeah. Give that one a shot. So, yeah. All right. So now I want to talk a little bit about, um, how you man, you've got such a dynamic farm, like you've got such a dynamic operation between your full service high-end florist (laughs) you know pistol and stamen is you know the cream of the crop in new orleans in terms of design work and then you also have this farm you must have a very diversified staff and you've got to have learned to delegate some is that is that true and can you tell me how and i know you have a farm manager and would love to know how you took that leap of faith because I feel like sometimes I need to take that leap of faith, but I don't know how the hell to hand stuff off. So. Um, yeah. So delegation is great. Mm. Um, it's one of my favorite things. Um, the sheer fact like, oh my gosh, this thing got crossed off a list and I didn't do it <laughs> is like validation in and of itself. And all of the things about, you know, maybe I would have done it differently. Maybe I would have done it faster. Maybe I would have done it like anything. Yeah. No, it's somebody done. else is doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's done. <laughs> and um, in an ideal world, this person is in with you for the longer term. Mm-hmm. And so a learning curve is perfectly fine. Okay. And, um, and yeah, so basically I think that help is amazing. Um, and anything that other people can do that, uh, either, you know, we end up basically the positions that we hire for are either the things that um, are either people can come with their own skills and or are relatively trainable for. Um, So that comes first, I think, in terms of like field management um, and kind of like you know, not quite a, you know, farm manager per se, but maybe, yeah, like a field manager, somebody who makes sure that everything is planted on time. Somebody okay. who knows about what to look for in plant health. Um, somebody who knows, you know, our basic procedures of how to bed, build beds, turn beds. Um, that we um, hired for pretty early. And then the other aspect of like the things that uh, is the things that I, we really don't like doing or mm-hmm. are not good at. Okay. Um, and so, uh, you know, staying on top of emails for me is, uh, you know, I can have a few trays in the greenhouse unplanted. Sure, they stress me out. Yeah. But if I have a few emails in my inbox unanswered, they um, 
sort of disproportionately stressed Yeah, they out. percolate and they really eat at your brain. It's like the thing exactly. that I can't sleep with is if there's like exactly. a lot of hanging email-ishness out exactly. there. Exactly. Yeah. And so we hired somebody, you know, we've had somebody in this position and they've had different roles mm-hmm. throughout um, different iterations, but at the most basic, you know, somebody who's just like, thank you. I got your email. Mm-hmm. We'll get back to you in the next 24 hours. Like, a person, I know it sounds sort of ridiculous. It's like a personalized kind of vacation responder, but like, you know, it's um, just to make sure that things aren't falling through the cracks yeah. and just to make sure that, you know, we're putting our best foot forward. And for me, I don't know about you, but and I think it's this sort of so psychological, emotional thing, like the longer an email has been unanswered, oh, the more yeah. intimidated <laughs> I am. And, you know, so um, somebody in that role um, running sort of like first defense or whatever mm-hmm. has been really, really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I've always called my um, assistant, Jennifer, my gatekeeper. So she's just yeah. there. She's just there to be the person that either welcomes somebody into the gate or tells them the gate's not open. And that's okay. Yeah. It's just a polite way of managing yeah. uh, information yeah. flow. And then I've always thought too, having somebody there's so many roles you can hire for in a farmer florist operation, but I think one of that's one of the most critical ones only because it's the way your farm will be the most vulnerable or your business will yeah. be the most vulnerable. If you get sick, I've always said, you know, like, I, or I should say, if I get sick or there's a family emergency um, and you just got to drop everything and run, you know, somebody can figure out how to water the plants, but uh, it takes somebody who's skilled and already knows the systems to be able to answer those emails in your absence and and keep the business yeah. flowing. So yeah. without that role, I think you're very vulnerable. Anybody who has no backup in the administrative department is, is very vulnerable. So yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. And then you bring in a lot of freelancers for your design work then too, or how does that we flow? Do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've experimented with different staffing models over the past. And um, what we currently have is someone coming on um, as our weddings coordinator, hmm. <clears throat> full-time position, um, and then uh, Chris, who's our full-time farm manager. And uh, with these bigger weddings that we do, um, like you said, they're, you know, big, fancy, mm-hmm. high ticket. Yeah. Um, we will get, you know, COVID really took its toll on everyone. Um, and it took its toll on um, wedding freelancers, event mm-hmm. freelancers. Yeah, you they're know, not, they don't entire, exist anymore. They don't exist, here. you know, people got, yeah. yeah, no, they don't, you know, it's they went back to school or they mm-hmm. moved or they changed careers mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so we ended up having to fly in a lot of people. Um, but yeah, we've got, we have events that sometimes our staffing is 10, 12 people. Wow. Wow. That's a, it's so much to manage. Does, um, does Chris, the farm manager participate in the design work stuff or anybody else from the farm to participate in the design? Not at all. No. Okay. Okay. Here at my farm, I try to mix, mix my field, um, help with my design help It, it, it sometimes in a very, um, uh, simple way, because I think it's so gratifying for them to see the flowers actually go into like the final, like, holy crap, this is gorgeous <laughs> moment. Yeah. Uh, that seems to, seems to really uh, bring it full circle. But uh, I have a follow up question about um, how you and Chris, as your farm manager, interact. Do you give him a crop plan and then it's just like, see, ya, produce this in a certain time. Is it a more interactive uh, back and forth? What's what's that relationship like? If you don't mind talking about it, like I, I think finding yeah. farm managers is challenging in the flower world because it's not it's not a status quo. I feel like in veggies, a lot of people have farm managers, but it doesn't feel yeah. so normal in the flower world. 
Yeah, no, I think, you know, in terms of a business, it's hard to have the money or the um, priorities to feel like you want to pay somebody else Mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that different businesses work different ways for us, just because we do have, you know, the design portion of our business is pretty big um, and demands a bunch of like sort of uniquely, Mm -hmm. you know, my attention or me and Megan's attention. Mm -hmm. Um, That's less attention that I have to be able to for anything else, including the farm. So um, the way that it works, we have um, a weekly meeting, um, uh, sort of all staff, and that's just to get on the same page as everybody, update on projects, you know, make sure that we all know kind of what's going on over the week. And then um, I uh, have a check-in with Chris on the farm once a week, um, where we just kind of do a walkthrough. And for me, the walkthrough is Um, one of the most like sort of important parts Hmm. to I think bringing on anybody new the idea is that they start to see it the way that you see it Hmm. they start to notice the things that you notice they start to look for the things that you look for Um, and uh, the walkthrough is a sort of simultaneous check-in on individual crops it's a check-in on maybe, um, you know, experiments that you get a chance to check in with the progress over the, you know, a couple, a couple weeks, yeah. um, a walkthrough can be like, you know, oops, you know, I wouldn't have done it like that. Um, maybe next time we need to try it like this. Um, a walkthrough is talking informally about crop successes, um, and failures. And then, um, the last thing that we do is at the end of every season, we have, a crop by crop check-in okay where you know he has firsthand perspective the most number of hours we have the perspective of you know how useful these flowers are how how, end user yeah exactly how many were helpful you know yeah and so we put the two sides together um at the end of every season to be like yes you know this did really 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 well i definitely want to try this but maybe let's do three successions next year mm-hmm. and then like oops those three successions was actually way too many let's go back to two <laughs> right. um, or you know i um i absolutely loved this variety of this and i don't care if i never grow this variety of that same thing right. ever again right. um so it's a, a chance for us to be able to say that in terms of how useful it was on the end and for him to be like you know it seems like the experiment that we did with planting the ami in this bed was really successful um let's do that but try it two weeks earlier loving this conversation. I'm going to steer a little bit towards uh, the design side of things because I just want listeners to know they need to look up the Instagram for Pistol and Stamen, go to the website. Your design style is just, uh, it's so unique. It's so inspirational. People often ask me who, you know, who out there is inspiring to me as a designer. And I always say, you know, Pistol and Stamen has got these amazing, airy, ethereal, uh, layered, light <laughs> color combinations. I, and I've got so many, I've got so many uh, accolades for you guys. But I want to know, uh did you work towards a specific design style? Did that come naturally? This is such an annoying question because people ask me this all the time. So I figured I'd ask you. <laughs> Thanks, Jenny. <laughs> how, how did it evolve? Because uh, I know there's a lot of newer farmer florists who are like, how do I find my style? And so what yeah. what do you think happened there? You know, um, the shortest answer to that question is it's been an evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a more in-depth answer is we sort of like, we are inspired 
we were gardeners before we were anything mm. else. And I mean, gardeners, not farmers. Yeah. Um, okay. Like, and I think, and I think that gardening has to do with really understanding plants, understanding like their combinations, understanding their pretty bloom times, complementary mm -hmm. bloom times, understanding their different shapes, knowing what they look like in a garden, the way that they move in the wind, you know, all that. Yeah. Um, and seeing like unexpected things planted next to each other. Yeah. So that, that is our whole background. Um, in making sort of aesthetically pleasing gardens, yeah. um, a school, a school garden, yes, it makes food and has pollinator habitat and all that, but it also has to be pretty. And that's, and that's mm. a, an important part of it. Um, that shouldn't be overlooked. You've got a public garden that you want to show people love. You want to show people care. Um, and I think that our, you know, our design style had to grow out of that. Right. Mm. You know, it's like, that's how we see plants. That's how yeah. we interact with plants. Yeah. And then, um, Beyond that, I think that we've grown a lot and matured a lot as designers. Um, I think that uh, we still, you know, I feel like you can look at the florists out there and some of them are flower farmers like us and some of them are actually just designers. Mm -hmm. And you can tell when they really know plants, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they know the name of what they're working right. with. <laughs> they, they call it a flower rather than a product. <laughs> um, they, um, you know, it's like, I think that there's just a deep knowing of like, uh, the plant life mm -hmm. and being, and our desire as florists is to basically like share our care and love mm. of plant life yeah. and of gardens yeah. and of the things that are blooming in this city with our yeah. people. So we started, uh, I don't know if this was a normal place or a reasonable place to start, but we were trying for our website to try to figure out what are some different adjectives that like, you know, that we can even ground ourselves in. Mm. I like that. Um, yeah. cause for a while it's like, do Megan and I design the same way? No, yeah. but do we clearly yeah. design from the same company? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, just sort of grounding ourselves in like, what are we even up to here? Hmm. And we came up with um, bold, artful, and something else. I forget the third one, but we just like, okay, these are cool. Like these, yeah. this rings, this rings true. This feels like, yeah, our, is our work bold? Is our work artful? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think that, um, that was how we started. Then I feel like there were a, a couple key people that we learned mm. from mm. Um, that kind of were a little bit game changers. Oh, um, do tell. Who, who was that? We did we did a workshop with um, La Musa de las Flores and, and also the Blue Carrot um, in Mexico. And um, Blue Carrot, Susana was like, uh, she hates green. She hates the color green, which um, was one of the biggest turning points in just like, oh, wow, like there are so many greens out there and there are so, and like plants and flowers usually come with leaves and just re and like reconsidering that whole scenario of just like, what size leaf do I want? What shape leaf do I want? What texture leaf do I want? Um, what color leaf do I want? Do I want no leaves? What color is the stem? If I, cho if I choose to use foliage, I'm specifically, you know, I'll hold up a branch of something and I'll specifically think, what leaves do I want to keep and what leaves do I want to take away? Like the fact that green is as much of um, an ingredient, that green is as much of a color in a composition as any other color, any other ingredient, I think was like a real turning point. And I feel um, like you guys don't have a lot of greens in your designs. Are, now that I like are, am thinking it through, I'm like, you don't have much greenery. No, we are very, we are very choosy about mm. the greens that we use. And yeah. I think that that was um, just like a really big thing. Yeah. Um, see, certain seasons will use more green than others. And I feel like, you know, 
the other thing that inspires our design, obviously, is seasonality. Yeah. Um, so it's just sort of like what makes sense at the time. Right. Um, early, early spring, you'll have teeny flowers with like quite a bit of pretty foliage, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, so that's one. And I think that in general, just the, I would say the way that we've evolved or the way that we've matured or whatever, um, over the years that I think is the most consistent lesson that we've learned is really like editing. Mm. Um, and that's editing in terms of the number of ingredients that we use in a certain thing. I think that when we first started out as flower farmers, where you're just like, I've got the whole field. Like I, I, I can use this and this and this and this, cause they're all flowering right now. And I think that we learned that, um, just because they're all flowering does not necessarily mean you have to use them all. Mm -hmm. Um, Or maybe you use them all, but the centerpieces, let's say you've got eight things blooming, maybe the centerpieces get three Mm -hmm. that are unique and then the bud bases get two and then the installs get two. So it's like, or whatever, whatever that math is, where it's like, sure, you're you're using, you're using every ingredient in your field, but you're not putting everything in every design. Mm. Um, And so I think we started just being like, a lot more particular about the number of ingredients that we were, that we were using. Mm. Um, and then also particular just sort of in general about, you know, curating, editing the design itself, mm-hmm. where it's like, I'll put our process is usually like, I'll put together a bridal bouquet and then I'll, it'll be 70, 80, 90% done. Mm-hmm. And then my step at that point is to take stuff out. Hmm. Oh, interesting. I have never taken anything out of a bridal bouquet. Yeah. <laughs> I might yeah. have to try that. <laughs> um, and I think that that is, has been really helpful hmm. um, in terms of uh, at least, yeah, I think both in our like sort of centerpiece big arrangement work and in our like, you know, handheld designs and bridal bouquets. Yeah. The there's something that I feel like we've learned about things looking more elegant and more like that quote unquote effortless, mm-hmm. which I have a lot to say about, but um, I think that there's something about the like reining back or simplicity, you know, that like mm-hmm. Coco Chanel thing that's like yeah. get dressed exactly. and then take one thing off. I yeah. feel like um, that is really, tr- I feel like there's something that reads um, elevated Hmm. and elegant when, um, you're more intentional, when we're more intentional about, um, what shows up where in terms of color or the number of flowers that we use. It definitely, it definitely would feel more sophisticated and, and uh, tailored. I think tailored. Yeah. Your design work definitely reads very tailored, elegant, tailored, you know, and, uh, and that, yeah, that comes through. I, I can see that now that you've said that it's amazing how it translates once I, once I've heard your words about that. That's, that's, yeah, it wasn't, it, it wasn't absolutely intentional. You know, mm-hmm. we weren't going like, yes, obviously we wanted our stuff to look fancy. We wanted our stuff to look pretty, um, but it wasn't exactly intentional. And then there was like some designers who I really admire, you know, the Sarah Winwards of the world mm-hmm. or the Studio Mondings of the world, yeah. where it's just like so beautiful and yeah. so simple. Yeah. And in, not that I think my work would ever look like theirs. I think or it that does. Even, <laughs> or that even, or that even there's sort of like even a direct inspiration, mm-hmm. but more is just sort of like I'm mm-hmm. inspired by their restraint. Mm-hmm. And I guess that sort of, that idea of restraint put on top of the mm. farmer florist maximalist is I guess sort of somewhere where we're at. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you is what is your favorite sustainable floral mechanic? Like, what are you using? Oh my God, I have such a definitive, I have such a definitive answer. Okay. It's the, Floral Genius, Harmony Harvest, Floral Genius, those heavy pin frog cups. Oh, the cups. You use the cups. Constantly for everything. Oh, I have never tried the cups because I'm kind of like, 
I, I mean, I do the frogs all the time, but the cups are confusing to me. So you're going to have to like lay it out because how do you get things to drape over the edges when there's a rigid cup around the pin? Okay. So um, <laughs> we use cups for all kinds of things. Hmm. Um, cups are extremely helpful in installations because they're just so freaking heavy. So we use cups, even if we don't put stuff in them, we use cups as anchor points. As an anchor. Okay. Like if, if we're doing a mantle or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. You know, we'll use these cups, drapey, 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 the cups, you put it on top of the leaf or you put it to hold back the stem and it stays exactly where it is. And then we put like a couple little artful, you know, whatever sticking out of the cups and it's really nice. Wow. Um, so we use the cups in our installations a lot. Anything that we're doing on ledges, windowsills, you know, um, mantles, step, steps. Um, we use the cups a lot on um, like exterior coffee tables. Okay. High, or high boys. Yeah. Um, where they want a really small arrangement that will absolutely never blow away. That won't wow. tip over. Um, and then we also put them in um, any footed centerpiece that we also know is going to be outside. Mm -hmm. Again, just so that it's so keep heavy. Them heavy. Um, honestly, their weight is like three quarters of their charm, in my opinion. I never thought about it in that way, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, I absolutely love them. They are so versatile. And like you tuck them into any installation, you know, you do an installation. We did this like cool plant installation on pedestals and stuff like that. Some living plants, some greenery, and then you just tuck these little cups in. You've got one gorgeous, you know, mm -hmm. amaryllis situation happening out of this one little cup that you just hide in. and it, you know. Yeah. And then you just put stuff all around the cup so yeah. you don't even see it. Wow. I'm definitely going to uh, link to those in the show notes for anybody who's like, what are they talking about? <laughs> Just look in the they show notes. They are the notes. best. You're, they're shockingly heavy. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you hold it in your hand and you're like, Phew. yeah, yeah. Um, they're shockingly heavy. And that is exactly why I love them. And then you you guys are going back at the end of the night then to pick up all this stuff because there's no way you're buying those and, and yeah. sending them out into the world. They're pricey. So yeah, yeah. yeah. but that's that's a great, um, a great system. And then when you're doing like a compote or something, you're relying just on the cup or do you do tape across or chicken wire or anything like that too? We usually do. So it's like, you know, depending on the size of the footed compote that we have, we'll put one of those big cups. Sometimes we'll put three of those big cups if we're dealing with mm, a super okay. large vessel. Yeah. Um, but really it's like any footed, any footed thing has the potential of blowing over. Yeah. Um, and so they are just, if they're going outdoors. Um, and so it's just so helpful for us to have, we'll put the cups in, tack them in with some putty and then make, um, kind of like a bottomless chicken wire pillow, mm, okay. like a chicken wire, donut, mm -hmm. chicken wire pillow, but actually a donut. Yeah. 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 Um, and then just put that on top. And so you have some stems, you know, if we're using like a really heavy or extra tall, we want to make sure absolutely to sink them into the, the into the frog cup. Okay. And then everything else you sort of sort of design as normal. And when you go to fill up the vessel, you're filling up. The entire vessel and it covers yeah. the lips of the pinfall okay. cup so it's just they're just sort of extra heavy mechanics yeah 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 i see that so it's all about the stability of the piece yeah. the, ultimately yeah. so it's not even sometimes i find frogs really challenging because i feel like they aren't as stable but i never thought about the fact that the cups would just be so darn heavy that that would yeah that would make the stability yeah, and you can have like you know a big ass like heavy top heavy fruit stem yeah 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 in a in a big arrangement yeah. with a small foot or whatever you just yeah. stick it in there and it's good yeah. to go oh yeah 
All right. So to wrap it up, because uh, we should, but I could talk to you all day, as you know. But, you know, there's a certain length of podcasts people are really willing to buy into. So we might, <laughs> we might be at that point now. I don't know. Um, Thanks, everyone. Do you have any sage words of wisdom for brand new farmer florists? Like, can you can you step back in your mind to like 2014 and what it was that sort of helped you grasp or move forward? Uh in the in the in the in a farmer florist mentality, not just a flower farmer, but to be yeah. a sustainable seasonal farmer florist. Um, wow. There's a million things. You know, life teaches us <laughs> seventy five thousand lessons everywhere. Um and I then we unlearn the... them and have to learn them again. Exactly. For the <laughs> um, I think that the biggest one is um make sure you take vacation, make sure you take time mm. off the farm, make sure you take time mm. away. Like mm. just you can't. Yeah, that's my number one. Yeah. This is not worth doing mm -hmm. no matter how much you love flower farming no matter how much you love this flower farmer florist dream it is not worth doing if you don't get time to not do it um i think that is probably my numero uno mm. and then um the other is uh this is kind of woo but this is like where i'm at right now I is love it. that um it really is about a heart connection um, to what you're doing and why you're mm -hmm. doing it. Mm -hmm. And give yourself opportunities. One of the cool and weird things about starting a business is that nobody's there to tell you how it's supposed to go. Um, and so sometimes like the train is moving and you're just like, oh shit, I guess I got it on this train. And then sometimes <laughs> you are actually the director of the train. And sometimes mm -hmm. the train, you know, you have to like weirdly jump off even while it's still in motion. Say, and sometimes, sometimes it just runs you over. I mean, let's be exactly. honest. <laughs> um, exactly. And I think that um, ultimately like the ultimate key for me personally, in terms of sustainability, is just that like Give yourself, make sure that you give yourself, and maybe it's in your vacations, but make sure you give yourself time to, um, and like a very actually like pretty scheduled way of being able to check back in with yourself and check back in with your heart and why you started doing it. Um, and, you know, whether if there's an aspect of your business that's taking you away from your heart spark, notice it, notice that you're not as close to your heart spark as you were, figure out why, figure out if that makes sense, figure out figure out if it's going to be definite or indefinite and just remember to like, you know, keep your, keep your mind's eye, so to speak on like what you love about um, what you do. And you're not always, I feel like I've done a million roles and I've worn a million hats in this job that I haven't loved, but I've also given myself the opportunity to zoom out and realize that in context, it actually, these small things that I don't like are in service to a bigger thing that I do like. And I think that um, ultimately we, as a self-directed person or as an entrepreneur, um, you know, we can be our own worst bosses. And also like it is literally only the limit of our own creativity to make ourselves and make our business what we want it to be. Um, and just honoring that there's something that drew us to this in the first place um, and keeping checking in with that. I think that's the, that's the biggest thing. I feel like the most disconnected and the most stressed and the most overwhelmed when I feel the um, furthest away from um, that like heart place of yeah. uh, why I love what we do. Yeah. Uh, 
This is, wow, I, I feel like this whole conversation just fed my soul and I'm so, so grateful for you and all that you, you the energy you bring to my life and the energy you've just put out into the world through this uh, recording. So thank you for that, Denise. I hope I hope everybody goes and sees your beautiful work on Instagram and um, I can't wait to talk with you again soon. I'm sure that I will. So thank you thank for you, spending Jenny. time today. I'll talk to you later. I feel the exact same way about you. All right. <laughs> Bye. Take care. Well, that wraps up another energetic episode of No Till Flowers. I'm so grateful you tuned in and hope you got several new ideas that can help you farm more in step with nature. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Also, please take a second to rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow this show and let others know that it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, for his meticulous editing so you don't have to listen to too many of my outbursts of excitement and laughter. Also, gratitude goes to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. Until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil. <laughs>